All right, let's go ahead and get started with uh, our Sunday school class. We'll open up with a word of prayer and jump right into Genesis chapter 46, verse 29, and we're going to finish that off and get right into uh, chapter 47. Heavenly Father, we once again want to thank you for this day and for this particular Sunday and what it means and what it represents. Uh, this is uh, the Sunday right after Passover, and Lord, we just thank you for how that is just chocked full of meaning. And uh, as a result, we're going to uh, honor you today by uh, doing the Passover, which is a very condensed version of the Passover Seder. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and gear our hearts and minds toward the exodus, toward redemption, towards Yeshua dying on the cross, because that's what all this is all about today. And help us, Father, as we study in Genesis and uh, read your history. It's funny, the word history is his story. It's your story, Lord. You're the one who is the, the writer and initiator of history. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that in Proverbs it says that you move the hearts and minds of kings like a watercourse. You are in control. And uh, no matter what man says or does, they do it by your permissive will, if not by your divine perfect will. But you are ultimately in control and at the same time give us free will and free reign and we are free moral agents. So help us, Lord, as we read and study your word today. Help us to know what it's trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds. And uh, that we may be better uh, believers and better students for you uh, in order to bring others in, to, to edify the saints and to win the lost. We love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so we find that uh, Jacob and his entourage of his sons and their wives and his grandchildren, they all finally make it to Egypt. And uh, we stopped at verse 28. So I'll just read that and then we'll go right into verse 29. Now Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to prepare for his arrival at Goshen. So uh, the reason that Judah was in charge is because he was the firstborn, and he, therefore he had all the responsibilities. He was Jacob's right-hand man and spokesperson, so to speak. Uh, he basically, maybe in our uh, way of understanding, he would be the POA. He would be the power of attorney. A lot of times when uh, people get older, uh, their mind doesn't work as well. They're not as able-bodied as they used to, and a lot of times they'll get a power of attorney to take care of all their legal uh, uh, things. And uh, so this is kind of the, the role that Judah is playing. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to prepare for his arrival in Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, verse 29, this is where we're going to pick it up. Jo Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. It's interesting. I think and this just occurred to me. Joseph had Plenty of servants to hitch his horses for him, but I think he was so anxious to uh, see his father that he hitched, it, hitched the horses himself. Uh, he probably thought, I could do it quicker, I could do it better, I want to see my dad. Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went up to Goshen. And I imagine he, if there was any speed limits in Egypt, he was probably breaking them all. Because <laughs> he wanted to hurry up and see his dad, who, whom he hasn't seen in over 20 years. Uh, Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. Not his father, Jacob, but his father, Israel. When Joseph left and uh, he was sold into Egyptian slavery, his, his father mostly went by Jacob most of the time because of his fearfulness, because of uh, you know, his fleshliness. But now he's called Israel because he has gone into Egypt by faith. We see that in the last chapter of uh, 46 that uh, um, Jacob was having some fearful uh, reservations about going to Egypt. And God, uh, in the first uh, several verse, verses of chapter 46, eases Jacob's mind and, and increases his faith to let him know, I'm going to go with you. I'm not going to stay in Canaan while you go to Egypt. I'm going to go to Egypt with you. So Joseph is meeting a new father. He's meeting a new man. A man that has been converted from fear to faith. He's meeting Israel, his father whom he hasn't seen in over 20 years. Joseph presented himself and threw his arms around him and wept for a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am ready to die now because I have seen your face and you are still alive. 
Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's family, I will go up and inform Pharaoh, telling him, my brothers and my father's family who are in the land of Canaan have come to see me. So we're just going to kind of stop right there and back it up to verse 29. What a grand reunion it must have been. Over 20 years since, since Jacob or Israel had seen Joseph, the last time that Jacob slash Israel saw Joseph was in Genesis chapter 37. And, you know, a lot of times we never know when it's the last time we'll ever see somebody again. I'm thinking of all the COVID restrictions and how I'm not able to go home. And I'm thinking, man, maybe the last time I went home was the last time I would have seen my loved ones. A lot of, a lot of us, you know, uh, we're, we're going to have a funeral here in the next week. And a lot of us probably never thought that the last time we seen Lola Bell would, been, would have been the last time we seen her. But uh, she just changed addresses is all she did. Uh, we're not going to see her anymore in, in, in this life and in this world, but we're going to see her in the next. And she's waiting for every one of us. So we never know when it's the last time we're going to see someone. And if we keep that in mind, we're going to be more loving and tenderhearted to our family and friends. I've gotten in a habit ever since I was young that even if I was mad at my relatives, when I left them, I always told them that I love them. Because I, you never know if that's the last time you'll ever see that loved one again. And you want the last word you say to somebody to be, I love you. So I always made it a habit with my wife and my daughter and, and my mom and dad and my family and siblings is always say that I love you before I leave. But the last time that, that Jacob saw Joseph was in Genesis 37, verses uh, 12 through 14. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flock at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, uh, you know, are pasturing the flock in Shechem. Get ready. I am sending you to them. I am ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from Hebron, uh, from the Hebron Valley, and he went to Shechem. Jacob slash Israel probably never even crossed his mind that that would be the last time that he would see his beloved son, Joseph, the son of his favored wife. And then we see in verse 26 of chapter 37, Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and, lay, and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers agreed. When the Midianite traders passed by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the, Ishmaelite, uh, to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and he went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and they dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? So that was the last time that, that Jacob saw Joseph, sent him off on an errand to check on his brothers. And he just thought naturally he was going to come back. He said, come back and bring word to me. But he didn't come back. His, blood, uh, his robe stained with the blood of a goat came back. His father recognized it. It is my son's robe. And he said, a vicious animal has devoured him. That would just be the natural conclusion. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth around his waist and mourned for his son many days. And, his, and all of his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. So that's the last time that Joseph and Jacob saw each other. And here we are in Genesis uh, 46, over 20 years later in verse 29, where it says, Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. Joseph presented himself to him and threw his arms around him and wept for a long time. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may stay overnight, but joy comes in the morning. This was a new day that dawned for Jacob and Joseph. They had 20, over 20 years to catch up on, 20 years of, of, of lost time that they had to make up for. So no doubt they, 
probably uh, clung to each other and, and, and cried for, for a good 10 minutes. So it says he presented himself. What this means in the Hebrew is that he gave his father obeisance. He gave his father the respect due to an elder. Um, you know, back, back 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago in our culture, whenever an elderly person would come into our midst, we would all stand and rise in respect. We don't do that anymore. We even used to offer our seat if we had a better seat than they did. We don't do that anymore, sad to speak. Well, back in the Middle Eastern culture of this time, uh, kind of like in the Orient, so to speak, they, they bowed before their elders, sometimes even kneeling to the ground. It almost looks like worship, but it wasn't. They, you know, they were uh, 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 bowing down in respect and honor of their eldership and their authority that they had because they were the patriarch. We see Moses did that with his father-in-law. Did the same thing with his father-in-law. All right, so moving on to verse 30. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am ready to die now because I have seen your face and you are still alive. Jacob can now die a happy man. And finally, for once in his life, he's at peace. He's had a troubled, troubled life from the get-go. Even coming out of the womb, Esau was trying to kick him in the face. You know, and, and uh, he just kind of had a string of, 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 of unfortunate events all through his life up to this point. So it's as, almost as if Jacob is saying, you know, seeing you, thinking you were dead and now you're alive. I mean, this makes up for all of the bad. It's like, I don't even remember the bad stuff anymore. I can die a happy man because I've seen you. So verses 31 through 34, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's family, I will go up and inform Pharaoh, telling him, My brother and my father's family, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, and they, they also raise livestock. Uh, they have brought their flocks and herds and all that they have. So uh, people are like, okay, well, what's the big deal about this information? Joseph is being preemptive. He knows that, that, that Pharaoh is thinking, well, if, if Joseph is such a great man, and if he's so intelligent, and he's so uh, proficient, and his brothers are anything like him, his relatives are anything like him, I can really use them in my kingdom. I can really use them in my government. And Joseph was wanting to spare his brothers having to work for Pharaoh and therefore being influenced by the pagan faith and religions and being assimilated either through politics or through the military into the pagan Egyptian lifestyle. So he's kind of telling them ahead of time, yeah, all my brothers are shepherds, which that's detestable and abominable. That's, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, a garbage collector or a sanitation worker or, a, you know, somebody who services septic tanks or it, it was it was abominable to them because it was almost uh, almost blasphemous in a sense to the Egyptians because they worshipped these uh, these different animals. And so it says, um, verse 32, the men are shepherds. They also raise livestock. Uh, they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. So basically, J uh, Joseph was basically telling Pharaoh this so that Pharaoh would know right off the bat they're ineligible for military or political service. You know, heck, if you don't want shepherds eating at the same table, you definitely don't want them serving in your government or in your military. So he's sparing his brothers of being assimilated. Verse 33, when Pharaoh address, addresses you and asks, he's talking to his brothers, what is your occupation? You are to say, your servants, both we and our fathers, have raised, raised livestock from our youth until now. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen. You know, so... Joseph knew that Pharaoh is basically saying, look, there's no such thing as a free ride or a free lunch. I'm respecting you because you are Joseph's uh, family, and Joseph has done a lot for our people, basically saved our necks through this, you know, through interpreting my dream. Uh, so you're going to have to kind of earn your own keep, so to speak. So he was thinking of political or military service for Joseph's brothers. Now that they're ineligible for that, the only thing that they have to do is to, you know, maybe even take care of... Uh, of uh, Pharaoh's own flocks and herds at this point. So it says, then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen. So country mouse, city mouse kind of thing. Egypt was like the Big Apple. Egypt was like New York. Um, a hustle and bustle of business, of hedonism, 
of paganism, uh, a lot of bad influences, whereas Goshen is more like the Catskills or Skinny Atlas or, uh, you know, uh, Chittenango, which is, which is a few hours away from New York City proper, but it's far, it's close enough to the city to where you can go and do business and do what you need to do, but it's far enough away to where you won't be influenced by the city. And another good example is the Amish people. You go to places like Chittenango and Skinny Atlas, and there are uh, um, communities of Amish people. They're not influenced by the Big Apple at all. I mean, they keep to themselves. They're self-sustaining. They're self-sufficient. They have, you know, they have their own way of life, their own way of doing things, and just you could almost spit to New York in a sense. Uh, and they're not influenced by that. So Goshen was a safe haven for Joseph's brothers so as not to be influenced by the business, military, politics, and paganism of Egypt, but they could take the benefit of the um, uh, civility, the inventions, the, the, the benefits of Egypt without participating in the negative things. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen since all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So... Um, Again, this saves Joseph's brothers from military and or political service so as to keep them from being assimilated into the Egyptian slash Hyksos culture and religion and thus losing their Hebraic distinctive. Now, that's one thing that Jewish people have been successfully able to do all the way up into this point. Uh, no matter where they found themselves in, they stick out like a sore thumb because they do not look or eat or act or live like the people that they, they, that they are in. You know, the, the, the country, the place, the culture that they're in. They may be able to speak the language of that nation. They may be able to conduct business in that land or that nation. But yet they have their own way of life, their own religion, their own faith, their own way of eating and dressing and doing things. And uh, so they stick out like a sore thumb. But that, that stubbornness and that preservation has allowed them to uh, be compromising enough to be able to live and survive in a pagan Gentile culture and world, but at the same time be able to remain separate so as to keep their Hebraic Jewish distinctive of their way of life, their language, and their, um, their faith and their religion. So we jump into uh, chapter 47. So Joseph went and informed Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds, again, kind of emphasizing flocks and herds so you, get, you can guess what they do. And all that they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in the land of Goshen. So he, Joseph, took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Just kind of a small, just half of his brothers, just a small portion, a representatory of his brothers. And Pharaoh asked his brothers, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants both we and our fathers are shepherds. So they're, they're going right on script, right on cue, doing exactly as Joseph told them. Verse 4. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to stay in the land for a while, because there is no grazing land for our servants. Notice that. We have come to stay in the land for a while. They had no intentions of putting down roots there. They had no intentions of staying there, because they knew through the promise God gave Abraham that Egypt was not their promised land. Canaan was their promised land. That's where they were. That's where they came from. They had every intention to go back to Canaan as soon as the famine was over. So they were basically saying, we are not going to be permanent residents. We're going to be resident aliens in your land. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to stay in the land for a while because there is no grazing land for, our, uh, for your servants. Uh, sheep, since the famine in the land of Canaan has been severe. So now please let your servants settle in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and your brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt is open before you. So he's kind of saying, you know, yeah, Goshen's fine, but if you want to settle in and around Egypt, that's fine too. Uh, settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land, which the best part of the land is Goshen. They can live in the land of Goshen. If you know of any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Whew. Crisis averted. So because Pharaoh said, if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So the idea is out of Pharaoh's head, oh, I can use them in my military. I can use them in my government. I can use them here or there. 
He's like, okay, well, they're shepherds, so all that's out. So at least they can do, you know, for me to earn their keep is to watch over my livestock, to be in charge of my livestock. So Joseph alerts Pharaoh uh, of when his family arrived in Canaan. Pharaoh uh, wanted to inspect, scrutinize, and see if he could utilize Joseph's family in any way. Like I said, you know, there's no, no mooching and no free lunch. So Joseph, right off the bat, disqualifies them by divulging their occupation as shepherds. And again, uh, it made Pharaoh, uh, made Pharaoh see Joseph's brothers as low class, ineligible for military or political uh, service. So um, also, Joseph's brothers uh, being low class meant Pharaoh would only address them through Joseph. Thus, Joseph was the protector and buffer between them and Pharaoh. So in this whole interview, when he's inspecting the brothers, he's speaking to Joseph because Joseph is his equal. He's not addressing the brothers directly. And we see this as a very common thing in ancient culture. When uh, lowly peasants would address a king, they would address the king through an interpreter, through somebody that's higher up. Because it was considered, um, you know, it was against protocol and it was, you know, the, the king was part deity. And so, therefore, it would be beneath him to address somebody that's of a lower station than he is. So, whenever the king addressed anybody lower than him, he did it through a mediator. And this is the way it was in the Egyptian religion. You just couldn't address Ra or Osiris directly. You had to go through a mediator. We even, and, and that was Apis. And that was the golden calf that the Israelites made in, in, in the wilderness because the golden calf represented the mediator. And we even see this carried into Catholicism, where the priest is the mediator between you and God, a human being. No, the curtain has been torn. We have direct access to the throne of grace. And the scripture says that we should come boldly to the throne of grace. So we don't need a mediator. The only mediator we need is Jesus Christ. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. But we even see in the Greek pantheon, Nobody addressed Zeus directly. They addressed Zeus through Mercury because Mercury was the messenger god. He was that mediator. He was that buffer. So it was the same because Pharaoh was considered part god himself, part deity. And this is not strange because even Hercules was part god. He was like a third god or something like Perseus. And because they were born of the gods, they were human beings, so they had, but they still had a little bit of god blood in them. That goes back to Genesis 6 when the fallen angels... Uh, uh, cohabitated with the women and created these Nephilim. They were part angel, part supernatural, and they were part human being. And so that they were, they were these giants. So it all, you know, you're seeing how all this stuff kind of goes together. All right. So verse one confirms to us that they're going to be in the land of Goshen. And like I said, this is like Egypt is New York and the Catskills or Skinny Atlas or Chittenango is like Goshen. Uh, so they were far enough away that they wouldn't be influenced by the, the, the bad elements that were in Egypt. So verse 2, um, fearing that Pharaoh would want to conscript Joseph's brothers into the military, Joseph chose, according to the rabbis, the least and most unimpressive of his brothers. Now, we don't know for sure which five brothers that Joseph chose for Pharaoh to inspect, but my guess would be Reuben. Because number one, he's the oldest. So he's an old fart by now, and he's too old for military service, political service. He's not very impressive because he just got knocked out of being the firstborn. And the prophecy about him that Jacob would, would, would infer on Reuben, it says, Reuben, you are weak. You are unstable as water. You're double-minded. And I think Pharaoh saw this and said, uh, you know, Reuben's nothing. He's an old guy, for one. Number two, he can't make up his mind. He's wishy-washy. He's not dedicated to anything. My next guess would be Issachar. Because Issachar, Issachar was kind of like, um, let's, put it, let's put it in, in uh, uh, Warner Brothers terminology. Well, uh, you had a uh, foghorn leghorn, and uh, you know you always had that uh, widowed hen that was always trying to get to foghorn leghorn, and she had that little boy, the egghead little chick. You know, you remember him? He had the big head, and he had the round glasses. He never talked, but he was real nerdy. He was always wanting to read books. Foghorn leghorn was always trying to make him into a into a man, right? So Issachar was sort of like the scholar of all the brothers. Because in later passages, it says that Issachar knew the signs of the times and knew what Israel would to do. 
was supposed to do. So they were kind of like the scholarly, the bookworms. So Pharaoh couldn't use them in the military, didn't really care about them. That would be my guess. It was Reuben, Issachar, and Asher. Asher. His name means happy. How could you be intimidated by a guy named Happy? Right? You automatically think, oh, he's, he's kind of a pansy. After all, his name is Happy, right? Kind of like Johnny Cash and a boy named Sue, right? You're, you're not going to be intimidated by a guy named Happy. Naphtali would be my next guess. Now, Naphtali, and I know that I'm speculating here, but I'm just trying to, to, to look at the scriptures logically and try to put myself in Joseph's shoes to say, I wonder which brothers he would, would bring before Pharaoh, and these are my guesses. Naphtali does mean a wrestler, somebody who wrestles. But um, according to the rabbis and sages, it was Naphtali who produced all of the beautiful daughters of Israel. I mean, we're talking Miss Universe, Miss USA pageant, you know, quality women. Not only that, they were considered, according to prophecy, that uh, Jacob would infer upon Naphtali later that they were the bakers and the grain producers of Israel. You know, so I don't know, maybe, you know, if Naphtali was into baking at that time, maybe he was a little bit roly-poly. Maybe he was a little bit pudgy. We don't know. My next guess would be Zebulun. Zebulun could not stand still. He could not stay in one place for very long because uh, Reuben was a sailor. He was a, he, he was a nautical kind of guy. And it kind of makes me think of Christopher Cross. Sailing takes me away to where I always couldn't. Yacht Rock. Are you intimidated by Yacht Rock? No, Yacht Rock, I think of pink flamingos. I think of white shorts. I think of sailor's hats. You know, I think of, that, 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 that doesn't scream masculine. That doesn't scream intimidating. You know, so maybe Zebulon was kind of like a Christopher Cross in, in, in Yacht Rock. Uh, he, 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 you know, he just liked to be on the water. So that would be my guess. You definitely wouldn't bring Judah. Judah was the firstborn. He was impressive. He was going to be the future king of, of Israel. You weren't going to bring Gad. Gad was like a troop. Gad was a warrior. You weren't going to bring him. You definitely weren't going to bring Simeon and Levi. They're the ones who cut down Shechem with the sword. So you're not going to bring those brothers. They're the ones who are buff and tough, military, intimidating. They would have been perfect for the politics. They would have been perfect for the military. So Joseph brought the five weakest or most unimpressive of, of his brothers. Um, okay, verse uh, 3. And Pharaoh asked his brothers, what is your occupation? And so if we go back to um, 60, uh, 46, verse 3. God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation there. So um, we see that God is, is protecting his brothers because of that occupation. Being a shepherd was an advantage at this point in time. Verse 4, And when they said to Pharaoh, We have come to stay in the land for a while, because there is no grazing land for your servant. Again, just in, in emphasizing that they are going to be permanent residents. They weren't planning on staying in Egypt for very long, just at least until the famine was over. At least that was their plan. But if we go back to Genesis chapter 15... Genesis chapter 15, and check out verses 13 and 14. Uh, Genesis 15, 13, and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that doesn't belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. Well, maybe, just maybe, Jacob and his sons thought, okay, we know what our grandfather Abram or Abraham said to us about this prophecy about us being strangers in a strange land and being enslaved. So maybe we can avert this prophecy because we knew, we knew it's something that might be coming down the pike. And we can just say, okay, yeah, we're going to wait out the famine here, but then we're going to go back to Canaan because after all, that's what God promised to us in the first place. So maybe this was their way of trying to avert that prophecy from coming to pass. So it, uh, it goes on further in uh, chapter 15, verse uh, 14. However, I will judge the nation they serve. We know this is going to be Egypt. Now, this is going to be Egypt when Egypt regains, when the Egyptians regain power. 
Because if you remember, the Hyksos are in charge. They're basically cousins of, of Jacob and his family. They're Semitic. They both come from Shem. Now, in Exodus, it says, There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. We're thinking, how could he not know Joseph? Isn't it in the records and all this? Doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense if the Egyptians rise up and revolt against the Hyksos and take back their kingdom. Then they would say, no, we don't recognize Joseph and we don't recognize any of the other pharaohs before him because they weren't from us. And after all, it was Joseph who got us in the mess in the first place. Because of this stinking family, he may have saved our lives, but he, re he reduced us to serfdom. We had to give up our land and our money and our cattle and everything, and we were basically slaves to the Pharaoh. So they had a bone and, and, and a contention with this Joseph and with the Semitic people uh, uh, that Joseph comes from. And that's why the Egyptians looked down upon the people in Goshen because of this fact. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. So that kind of relates to 47.4 where it says, uh, And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to stay in the land for a while, because there is no grazing land for your servants, uh, for your servant's sheep, since the famine in the land of Canaan has now been severe. All right, so moving on, verses 5 and 6. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and your brothers have come, the land of Egypt is now open before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. They can live in the land of Goshen. If you know of any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Maybe, jo maybe Pharaoh's referring to the other brothers he didn't inspect or didn't interview. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't impressed with the five brothers that Joseph chose to show Pharaoh. And he's like, hey, well, if you know, if, if any of your other brothers are better than this, you know, maybe they can be put in charge of my livestock. Uh, okay. Now, according to the Stones Kamash, which is a uh, which which is a commentary on this passage, it says Pharaoh responded as graciously as Joseph had hoped, giving Joseph full authority to provide his family with the best Egypt had to offer. So the military or political service is avoided. They would not only tend their flocks, but Pharaoh's royal livestock as well. Goshen was chosen uh, to settle Joseph's family uh, because uh, to become resident aliens. Temporary residents, traditionally, temporary residents and passer-throughs or passerbys and people that weren't going to stay in the land forever were made to live on the outskirts of... of um, the country proper. And the reason being is they had to earn their keep. And what they were, they were the they were like the Marines. They were the frontline defense force for any invading forces that would want to come in and take over Egypt. And Goshen was the most vulnerable of fronts to Egypt. It would have been the easiest access point for any foreign nation to come to try to come against Egypt and take over. So Jacob, uh, Joseph and his family were to be like the front line of defense to protect Egypt from foreign invaders. All right, so let's move on to verses 7 through 10. Joseph then brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, my pilgrimage, my pilgrimage, which Israel, Jacob, he's basically saying, you know what? I'm not of this world. I'm a temporary resident and alien in this world. I'm looking for a, a better home. And Hebrews talks about that. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about that they, they, they were expecting a heavenly home, a different country. And so Jacob considered him a pilgrim in this life. My pilgrimage has lasted 130 years. My years have been few and hard, and they have not reached the years of my fathers during their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and departed from Pharaoh's presence. Now, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It seems like a reversal of stations, but, but this simply showed the ancient respect for the elderly. You could be a king. You could have the most powerful position in any country or government. But if an elder came into your presence, you would, you would show them the proper honor and respect because they've lived longer than you. They've been blessed with life longer than you. They've got more wisdom and knowledge that have accumulated over the years more than you. And so this was, again, the ancient uh, um, 
uh, how the ancients really revered and respected their elders, which we've lost that in our day, sad to speak. For Jacob to bless him, he must have been a good Pharaoh, unlike the one that would enslave God's people in the book of Exodus. We know from the blessing of Jacob over Esau that blessings are irrevocable. So however Jacob blessed Pharaoh, it was going to come true. It was going to come to pass. It was a done deal. Pharaoh asked Jacob his age. Why? Because Jacob was likely the oldest man that he had ever met. And Jacob was 130 years old. The life expectancy of Egyptians at that time was only 40 to 60 years of age. Now, God told the children of Israel, he made a promise to them. He said, I will inflict none of the, uh, none of the sicknesses that I inflicted upon Egypt. What does that mean? Well, autopsies have been done on numerous Egyptian mummies, the remains. They died of the same three things we die of. Heart disease, uh, diabetes, and uh, cancers. Those are all dietary diseases. God gave Israel a special way to eat. Only certain animals, only certain foods, which kept them from getting sick like the Egyptians. So it was very rare that, that an Israelite, a Torah-observant Israelite, would die of diabetes, cancer, and heart disease because they were obeying God's commandments. So the Egyptians at this time, according to autopsies done on mummies around this time, they died in their 40s and 60s. And here, Jacob was living twice that long at 130. Jacob replies that 130 years, and that's nothing compared to his ancestors. Now, we know the oldest man who ever lived was Methuselah. Uh, what was it, 969 years, I believe, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, so what was Jacob's blessing on Pharaoh? According to the biblical commentator Rashi, he blessed him that the Nile should rise at his feet uh, and inundate the land with water, thus the famine would end. So he was blessing Pharaoh in such a degree that, that, he, that the land would not uh, endure the famine for as long as it was supposed to endure. So um, according to the rabbis and according to tradition, uh, the famine lasted two more years instead of a full seven. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just what the rabbis say. I think that it, you know, it did last the entire seven years. But he blessed, he blessed uh, Pharaoh in such a way that uh, the, the, the famine would not be as severe in, you know, in the end times part of it, at least. Okay, so verse 11, it says, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers in the land of Egypt and gave them property and the best part of the land, the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, the land of Ramesses, Ramesses wasn't even around then. So is the Bible wrong? Is there a contradiction in the scripture? No. It's just that a later editor of the Torah said, okay, this word here that's saying where it is, nobody knows that name anymore. Like the McLaughlin Road. Everybody knows the McLaughlin Road. But it's also known as Hazel Dean. It's also known as several other names, Gordon. But there's a lot of people who don't know it as Gordon and doesn't know it as Hazel Dean, but they know McLaughlin. So a later editor or revisor of the Torah said, okay, this place, it's known as Ramesses now. So we're going to put that in there just so the reader knows what place we're talking about. They don't know what the name of it was before. So, um, as okay, the best part of the land, the land of Ramesses, or what would be known later as Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So according to the book of Jasher, Ephraim and Manasseh moved in with Jacob, his sons. Um, uh, basically, he moved in with Jacob and his uncles. So Jacob and his sons. So Ephraim and Manasseh, they were hanging around with, with grandfather and with all the uncles in order to learn the Hebrew way of life. Because they were raised as Egyptians, and the only thing they knew about the Hebraic way of life was 17 years' worth that came from Joseph. And so uh, they kind of moved to Goshen, according to the book of Jasher, in order to learn how to be a Hebrew. Now, again, a lot of times we think, okay, well, they're half Egyptian. 
Well, not necessarily so if the legends are correct. And the legend has it that Asenath was the child of, D of Dinah through the rape of Shechem. And because it was so shameful, she gave her up to, for adoption, and she was adopted by uh, Potiphar. Now, again, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just telling you what legend says and extra-biblical account says. And if that's the case, then Ephraim and Manasseh were full Hebrews. Uh, all right. This may be why Jacob ends up adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, because they moved in with them and spent so much time with them, if what Jasher says is true. And thus they became part of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, um, now the land spoken here when it says that they were uh, in the land of um, in the land of Ramesses in the land this Hebrew word is akuza which means a permanent holding a permanent holding which I think is very interesting because they didn't plan on staying in the land that long they were they made it clear that they wanted to uh, to leave fairly fairly quickly after the famine was over moving on to 47 verse 12. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's family with food and their dependents. They were fed from the king's table. They ate royal food and provisions. They had the best of the best. Moving on to verses uh, 13 to 26. There was no food in the entire region, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were exhausted by the famine. Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for grain that they were to purchase. And he bought the silver, he brought the silver to Pharaoh's palace. When the silver from the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were gone, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die here in front of you? The silver is gone. But Joseph says, Give me your livestock. Okay, so now their, their money's all gone, they're bankrupt. The only thing they have left is that's worth, that has dollar signs on them, is their livestock. So that's like if somebody goes bankrupt, how do they pay off their bankruptcy or whatever? You've got the repo man coming in, taking the jet, taking the Ferrari, taking the motorcycle, taking the skidoo, taking the side-by-side, -side, you, know, uh, you know, taking everything that is not nailed down. So Joseph says, give me your livestock since the silver is gone, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks of sheep, the herds of cattle, and the donkeys. That year, he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, okay, so this is three years, in, you know, three years here. Uh, they came the next year and said to him, we cannot hide from our Lord that the silver is gone and that all of our livestock belongs to our Lord. Uh, there is nothing left of our Lord except for our bodies and our land. Why should we die here in front of you, both us and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. Then we, will, the, then we with our land, will become Pharaoh's slaves. So they were, they were reduced to serfdom. Give us seed so that we can live and not die, so that the land will not become desolate. So all of the livestock, all of the land was now Pharaoh's. Pharaoh benefited from it. These people owned nothing. They owned nothing. They didn't even own themselves. They were serfs. They were slaves to this Hyksos ruler. All right, moving on. In this way, Joseph acquired all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh because every Egyptian sold his field since the famine was so severe for them. So they still got to live on the land, but they worked the land and whatever was grown from that land, there was a, a majority percentage that went to Pharaoh. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph moved the people to the cities. Okay, so uh, those who weren't able to work the land or couldn't work the land, they moved into the cities. And Joseph moved the people to the cities from one end of Egypt to the other. So it's centralizing all the peoples. The only land he did not acquire belonged to the priest, for they had uh, had an allowance from Pharaoh. They ate from their allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Understand today that I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you. Sow in the land. At harvest, you will give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths uh, will be yours as seed for the field and as food for yourselves, your household, and for your dependents. Um, so at this point, the Egyptians were grateful 
Because at least they had their lives. They had no freedom. They had no possessions. But at least they were alive. And they say in verse 25, you have saved our lives, they said. We have found favor with you, uh, with our Lord and with Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph made it a law still in effect today in the land of Egypt that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Only the priest's land had not belonged to Pharaoh. So, you know, they were, they were grateful at first because they were still alive. They weren't starving to death. But as the years pass by and they continue to have to give their grain and their resources for Pharaoh and they have to continue to work a land that they do not own anymore, I can see resentment and animosity being built up. Yeah, they, he saved our lives, but years later, what is it worth? I'm not a free person, I'm not a free man. So because Joseph did this, there was animosity not towards Pharaoh, but towards Joseph. Because Joseph was the one who instituted this plan. He was kind of the fall guy. And, and, and Pharaoh, in the process, kept his nose clean. It's kind of like there's, there's a legend and a tradition that people loved Aaron more than Moses. Because Moses, was the, he was the disciplinarian. He's the one who ground the golden calf into gold dust and made people drink it. He's the one who brought, you know, who, 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 who chastised them. Aaron, well, you know, we'll make a golden calf. I can, I can work with you guys. You know, he, he was very accommodating. And he was, he was, he was the good cop, and, and Moses was the bad cop. So it's kind of like Pharaoh was the good cop and Joseph was the bad cop in this situation. Uh, okay, so now... This kind of brings us to uh, some things today. There is something that is called um, the uh, Teichler cycle. And this is the cycle of all civilizations. And see if you can guess where we are. First, there comes faith in a nation. And through faith, we have courage. It was the faith of those in Europe who said, we're not going to be slaves to the king and to the state, and we're not going to follow their religion because it's twisted. We're going to break away, and we're going to find a new land. We're going to go somewhere else. So that faith led to courage, and that courage led them to the new land, Canada and the United States. And then liberty was established, fairness for all people. And as a result of that, there was abundance in the land. The fields of grain and, and, and production and because of so much abundance, we ended up taking it for granted and we become selfish. And from selfishness comes complacency. From complacency comes apathy. From apathy comes dependence. And from dependence comes bondage. I think we're in the dependent stage right now. Because we're depending on the government to solve our problems, to meet all our needs, to provide for us. And they love it. And if this occur, keeps occurring, we're going to go into bondage. Why? Because we've left faith. That's where it begins. We've left faith. And once, once bondage, the only blessing of bondage is that we finally wake up from our stupor and say, hey, we've lost it all. We've got to fight to get this back. And then that's when revolutions occur. And then that's probably when there's going to be a, a, a third great awakening and another revival, which will bring faith back to the land. And the cycle starts over and over again. So it's really scary. This has happened to Israel. This has happened to China. This has happened to Russia and all the communist countries. And now it's happening to us. We came to the new world because of bondage. We wanted our faith and our courage and our liberty. Israel left Egypt because of bondage. This serfdom created animosity and hatred for Joseph's people. People, uh, uh, his people in Goshen were not subject to the things of Egypt. So again, in Exodus chapter 1, we see that there is a Pharaoh who arises who doesn't know Joseph, and they start oppressing uh, Joseph's relatives. Okay, uh, we can finish out this chapter. Verse 27, Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it and became fruitful and very numerous. They were obeying God's command to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, verse 28, now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. When the time approached for him to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me kindly 
uh, in kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my fathers, carry me from Egypt and bury me in their burial place, which is the cave of Machpelah uh, that he bought from the children of Heth um, in Canaan. Joseph answered, I will do what you have asked. Now, again, this is a very weird oath. He said, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me kindly. Well, what does that mean? We dealt with that when, when uh, uh, I, um, Abraham was trying to find a wife for Isaac, and he brought Eleazar, his servant. He said, put your hand under my thigh and promise me you'll find a, son, uh, a wife for my son, but not from the women of Canaan. It's like you know, kind of swearing on the most sacred thing that you can think of. It's like swearing on a Bible because it's the Word of God. Under the thigh represented the most sacred covenant God made with Abraham. That was the circumcision. So one guy can't touch another guy's junk. So that would be very awkward. So it says, put your hand under my thigh. It was basically saying that's as close as you can get to the covenant. So it was symbolic of the, the covenant of circumcision, which was the most sacred covenant between God and man at that particular point in time. To us, it would be like swearing on a Bible. So it sounds weird and strange to us, but that's what that means. Uh, so Jacob died at 147, the only patriarch to die on foreign soil, but was buried in the land of Israel. Uh, okay, verse uh, 29. Oh, verse 30. When I rest with my fathers, carry me away from Egypt and bury me uh, in their burial place, which again was the cave of Machpelah, Joseph answered, I will do what you have asked. So this was, this was basically Jacob's last dying wish. So Joseph was going to fulfill that. And Jacob said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. So they didn't have any last will and testaments written down. It was all verbal. All their legal documents were verbal. And basically, the inheritance was divided up while the children were still living. We think that's strange, but back way back when, we were more in touch with our environment. We were more in touch with our health. It was more intuitive. So people kind of had a, a premonition of when they were going to die or knew when they were getting close. There's many stories of Native American tribes where the chief knew that he was going to die, and he says, I'm leaving you. He'd go off into the wilderness somewhere and die. He knew he was going to die within the next few days. And that's, I think, because um, you know, we were more intuitive and, and more in tune and in touch with our health. So we see in Genesis chapter 27 that before Abraham died, he divided up all of the inheritance to all of his sons and sent them away ahead of time so that Isaac would be safe. So uh, this is kind of what uh, Jacob was going to do. All right, so we actually made it through chapter uh, 47. Next week, we'll pick it up in chapter 48. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for allowing us to finish the last half of 46 and go all the way through 47 today. Help us, Lord, to um, you know assimilate, to digest, to understand to retain and recall at the right times the things that we've learned and studied today. And maybe we will go back this week and reread these chapters, and maybe you will reveal more to us that was, uh, than, than what was revealed today in our class. And Lord God, we love you and we praise you, and we ask these things and give thanks in Yeshua's name. Amen.